most welcome and uh, reliable speakers to the Friends of the Book Arts Press, James Mosley from the St. Bride Printing Library. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him back to Columbia. I'm sure you agree. In uh, 1692, King Louis XIV commissioned a printing type. And what most of us know about it, if we can remember, is that it's based on a grid of 3,204 little squares. Faut-il donc tant de carrés pour faire un O qui est rond? That is, I think, my first and last quotation in French in this particular lecture. Does it really need so many little squares to make an O, which is a round letter, said Fournier? Uh, mocking the whole exercise. Well, type designers for the last 10 years could tell him the answer. Yes, it does. Um, <laughs> but what else do we know about this particular exercise? I'm going to use my other specs. Problems of logistics. Um, that exercise, making the Romain du Roi, was related to a much more wide-ranging preparation of a description of the art of printing, of typefounding. This is commonplace. It's referred to and has been in most authorities for the last 50 years. And yet, to most of us, I suspect, I include myself, uh, it's still quite a mysterious business, a description of trades, practically an encyclopedia. But where is it? When was it published? What does it consist of? The answer is, even now, I think, uh, far from a clear one. I'm going to try and throw just a little bit of light on the subject. And uh, so I must ask you to accept what I'm going to tell you as something of a uh, progress report on um, work that is still very much in progress. I thought I ought to start really by, oh, rather briefly, cantering through, first of all, the position we're in with regard to the, the technical handbooks of our trade, printing, and particularly the related trade of typefounding, because we ought to remember that it's in barely 30 years books that have been rare or extremely difficult to locate, and certainly practically out of the question for scholars to, to keep at home, have been made available on really a rather satisfactory scale. Um, I say 30 years because in 1958 appeared the edition of Moxon's Mechanic Exercises, edited by Harry Carter and Herbert Davis, that marvelous, exemplary um, edition of what is still the major classic of both printing and typefounding, um, now, of course, available as a, a Dover paperback. But in fact, the, the scale of reprinting has been on a quite impressive scale. After Moxon came a batch of all the English manuals from Smith, that mysterious character of 1755, certainly a German, 
uh, Luckham, 1770, Stirrer, 188, Johnson's Typographia, 1824, Hansard, 1825, Savage, 1841. All those produced in 1966 and shortly afterwards by the Gregg imprint. Um, who then went on to produce French manuals, Fertel, 1723, Montmoreau, 1793, and on into the 19th century, all under the Gregg reprint. The American scene was really left for a number of enterprising people to mop up. Um, Harold Berliner um, producing that nice little edition of Thomas McKellar's American Printer in its 15th edition with Professor Bellinger's introduction. And of course the, the Garland series uh, with introductions rolled over under John Bidwell's um, excellent editorship. Lately we've had a whole series of German manuals. And these, those of you who know them, will be, know to be the prettiest and uh, most delightful pieces of bookmaking in the entire range that I'm talking about, bound in the most absurdly pretty cloth, um, but produced by Walter Wilkes, who is one of the foremost printers at the uh, Technical University at Darmstadt. Um, and with excellent introductions, something that I'm afraid the, the Gregg series have rather conspicuously lacked, by Wilkes himself, by Martin Boghart at uh, Wolfenbüttel, and by Franz Janssen, um, a Dutch bibliographer. And, well, they include the, virtually the whole range of the, the standard German manuals. These, incidentally, have perhaps been the rarest in, certainly in English libraries, uh, the works of, um, well, Gessner, the Leipzig printer, not in fact the author of his manuals, or not the whole of them, um, Teubel, Krebs, um, a whole lot of rarities that um, have been produced really in the last three to four years. Well, it now adds up to a really most satisfactory scene. And we have, moreover, the, the bibliography of printer's manuals, which was sketched out by Giles Barber, Philip Gaskell, Georgina Warrilow in the Printing Historical Society Journal. Giles Barber did his note on French manuals in 1969 for the Oxford Bibliographical Society. Martin Boghart as a sort of support to the German series, added his own bibliography in the German magazine Philo Biblon. Well, so much for, for printed sources. But there are sources that are more intractable. Uh, printed, perhaps, in few copies, or one copy, or perhaps not ever printed at all. And this is really the second wave of sources for printing history, for the history of printing technology. And this is the area into which I propose to venture rather tentatively this evening, but to remind us of what has been done or what is being done in this field. Um, we ought, I think, to add 
into this category, uh, Giles Barber's marvelous assembly of bits out of the encyclopédie. I say bits because some of them are no lo longer than one-inch references, and to have to go through that terrifying wall of folio volumes in search of these, which Barber did most effectively, is something I think we're all glad to be spared. Uh, we can now do it by looking in his bookmaking in Diderot's Encyclopédie, published in 1973, an atrocious piece of bookmaking by Greg. Nevertheless, uh, we're grateful for it. It's done from Xerox. Well, that, as I say, that's uh, not exactly an unprinted source, but it's certainly not the most accessible. Then there is one very mysterious thing. Um, a Spanish bibliographer who is an instructor at the library school in Madrid had the wit to read the back notes of Updike's printing types which in some ways is better reading, or more rewarding reading. Uh, no, I shouldn't say that. But he did come across um, something that aroused interest, his interest, and that was a work entitled Institucioni Origin del Arte de la Imprenta y Reglas Generales para los Componedores of about 1680 which Updike announced he had in his possession a set of proof sheets, apparently, of a work instructing compositors in their, uh, the practice of their craft. It proves to be, as far as we can tell, the only copy of this particular work. And it is indeed in Providence Public Library in the Updike collection, and Jaime Moll, has recently edited this work, um, printed in Madrid, with something of a, a crow of triumph at a work that apparently antedates Moxon by three years. I should say, by the way, that his triumph is a little bit understandably over-enthusiastic. The work of the compositors that it gives you is chiefly a matter of imposition diagrams, which are indeed available in, say, the early German manual of Hornschuch of 16 Nevertheless, I think one is glad that this sort of interest should be shown in uh, Spain itself. Very recently indeed, Conafai, uh, lately professor at uh, Birkbeck College in the University of London has turned up another manual produced by the manager of the Ducal Printing Office in Parma. And that is in, in manuscript. And we can date that to the, the late 18th century. Now, the exciting thing about this sort of material is that these are manuals, exciting to those of us with this particular interest in printing technology, is that they give us a vocabulary, uh, comments on the actions of the workers 
in the, the field of the book arts which simply have not been available. And um, in the case of the, the Italian manual, again, there is a good um, likelihood that we shall be having that, or parts of it shortly, in print. In the whole of this field, um, it is, I suppose, English and French language material that has aroused particular interest because of the sheer scale of its production and its quality. And in that context, it seems to be really rather curious that we have this reputed account of printing produced by the, the French Academy of Sciences, which simply does not exist in the literature. Um, it is indeed referred to by Giles Barber in his account of letterpress printing manuals. I have yet to seen a, see a discussion of it in any of the standard texts I've referred to. Harry Carter was certainly aware of it when he edited not only Moxon, but Simon-Pierre Fournier's account of typefounding. And yet you would hardly think that he had looked at it. Why should it be that a, a manuscript source of this kind has proved so intractable? Um, well, I hope to perhaps throw some little light on that, but perhaps I ought to sketch as briefly as I can something of the reason of how it actually came to exist. What it is, is the fruit of that extraordinary period in the 1660s when academies were set up both in, this, in uh, Great Britain and in France in a whole variety of disciplines. The Académie Française, 1635, spawns a whole series of official bodies. The British Royal Society comes into existence in 1660. And one ought to note in passing that Joseph Moxon, um, printer, type founder, was in fact a fellow of the Royal Society. It was something that quite rapidly shed this interest in the, the practical hand crafts and moved into the more elevated sphere of theoretical science. But you have a curious parallel to it in the, the French Academy of Sciences. There was a small group of savants, chiefly um, theoretical scientists, as we would say, meeting in private houses who were recognized as the Academy Royale des Sciences in 1666. And this is uh, the origin of the particular exercise that I'm going to refer to now. We ought to remind ourselves also, though, that it's the period of this setting up of state institutions what is known in French as dirigisme, 
the intervention of the state into a number of different areas of industry in order to promote their technical advancement. Uh, in that decade, in fact, the 1660s, you have the Gobelin tapestry work set up in order to produce tapestries, admittedly as a kind of instrument of state for the glorification of state palaces and, I suppose, for presentation to friendly powers. Saint-Gobain, the glassworks, is the most spectacular example of just this exercise in state promotion, which I think the current French government is doing its best now to, as we say, privatize after 300 years. But I believe it is still one of the most spectacularly advanced uh, technically of the world's glassworks. And of course it's in this context that the imprimerie royale should be seen, uh, an intervention by the state in printing itself, not perhaps as innocent as we might see, think. Um, Henri-Jean Martin has suggested that this venture might very well, if Richelieu had not died two years after its founding, have led to a more substantial intervention in uh, the business of printing and the regulation of the book trade. Well, as far as the Academy of Sciences is concerned, it is studied with theoretically glamorous names, Pascal, Descartes. And indeed, its work was, as much as anything, the reading of papers in the theoretical field. But very early indeed, it got interested simply in trades, the technical improvement of manufacturing industry. And uh, an instruction was put out by Colbert at the height of his power in the 1670s, a quite explicit instruction to the Academy that all the machines in the practice of the arts, that is the mechanical arts, should be described by the, the Academy. Which was, as we shall see, to, to bear some sort of fruit. What we ought to also to remember was that the 1670s are the period of state book production on the most sumptuous scale. Um, printing as an instrument of the glorification of Louis XIV, uh, an instrument of diplomacy to present the glories of the French state to, um, I was going to say friendly, but friendly and non-friendly powers. Uh, so that the extraordinary series of copper plate books, vast folios showing the, the royal palaces, for example, were very much a question of promotion. And these, we should remember, were actually printed in the Bibliothèque Royale itself, where copper plate presses were set up. And to some extent, this was the publishing of works written for the Cabinet du Roi, the uh, calligraphic works prepared for the King's Library, and then vulgarized through the medium of print. Uh, 
the devise pour les tapisseries du roi of 1670 is a spectacular example of just this sort of exercise. But at the same time, there are technical books, Cassini, uh, elements of astronomy, are one of the productions of these presses. That is the, the Imprimerie Royale and the copper plate presses in the Bibliothèque Royale. So it's in this particular period of rather sumptuous book production that uh, a commission is set up in order to, rather belatedly you might think, put into operation this instruction from Colbert. In 1692, this little commission was set up by the Abbé Bignon. Now, the Abbé Bignon is, was the nephew of the Comte de Pontchartrain, who was, in a sense, the successor to de Colbert, the controller des finances, the, uh, who had responsibility for the financial operations of the Imprimerie Royale. His nephew was indeed an abbé with, uh, in holy orders. Saint-Simon says that he was a priest of whom the, the lifestyle, I suppose we would say, have removed all hope of an episcopacy. And so he was put, first of all, in charge of ecclesiastical affairs, and then generally a sort of oversight of the academies. And he selected this small team of academicians um, who produced the, the work that I'm concerned with. The best known of them, really, is Jacques Georgion, who was 37, um, a technician. Not a lot to say about him. He had dabbled in armaments. He produced a kind of multiple warhead mortar, which sounds quite terrifying, which was certainly, uh, I don't know if it was ever put into practical use. But uh, he was thought to be knowledgeable about technology. The really interesting one is Gilles Philo de Billette, who was by far the most experienced. He was 58 in 1692. He was the one who was fascinated by the technology of trades. And in his obituary published by the Academy, it was said that he had this extraordinary knowledge of a whole variety of industries who were quite unknown to those who didn't actually practice them and never really looked at by those who did. Jean Truchet, the third member of the commission, another abbé, Carmelite, but a mechanical genius. He produced the, uh, some of the pumps for the great fountains at Versailles. And what he did, in fact, invent during the course of this exercise was a kind of demountable iron copper plate printing press. Fascinating thing. You'd think it was 19th century to look at it, but there it was. It was invented by Truchet in the 1690s. And this little commission 
began its exercise. Initially, the brief was to cover the whole of the arts. Um, a lady called Claire Salomon Bayer has recently studied Philo de Billet's notes, jottings, I think would be the better word, which are in his dossier in the archives of the Academy of Sciences, which I've also looked at. I'll show you one or two bits of them. And what is astonishing is that his initial brief for this exercise was what he called an encyclopédie. It is enormous in its extent. It would have covered all the mechanical trades, um, most impressive in its scope. What narrowed it down was the decision, quite suddenly, to start with the art that preserves all the arts. And that seems to have been very, very closely related to a particular project. That is the so-called medallic history of the king, the medals of the principal events of the reign of Louis XIV. There had already been an academy of inscriptions busily drawing up mottos for the great medals that were being struck quite deliberately in order to record the, the military glories of the reign of Louis XIV. And the project for printing these was clearly the, the moving force behind the exercise that is known as the preparation of the Romain du Roi, the printing type. I won't go into the details of that preparation because they have been studied brilliantly by André Jam, the French book dealer. And indeed, it's Jam's own researches in the archives of the Academy of Sciences that's really helped to flesh out the rather bare bones of the account that we once had of this whole exercise. This meant that the theoretical exercise of studying the way printing types were made and printing was done was overtaken by the practical scramble to get new types made by a punch cutter. Where was a punch cutter to be found? There were no punch cutters. Fournier himself says this, that when in the late 17th century the business of adding J's and U's in capital letters to the old Garamond fonts had arisen. They, you could not find someone. The old types served so well. Grand Jean, in fact, the punch cutter who was used, was the taught by a man who cut punches for medals. So it's this whole exercise of medals that is really behind the, the making of that famous book. Passu, with this whole exercise, went the engraving of plates, the reading of papers on the, the practical exercise of printing. And uh, plates were engraved by Louis Simoneau, again, an engraver who had worked for the, the projects I've mentioned. Plates that show how printing is done, how type is made, how books are bound, and so on and so on. These papers were read and criticized 
Jojon got into particular trouble. He read a paper in 1703 on the tempering of punches. His thesis was strongly disputed, says the record of the occasion. So there was a certain amount of um, um, criticism and improving of these accounts. Time was going by. Jojon wrote up his collection of papers. And one might have thought this was time to print something, but no. In the early 1700s, more and more trades were described. Royal Muir took over as secretary. More and more trades were described. Gradually the pace slackened. Gradually fewer plates were being engraved. 1730s, 1740s. In 1750, Diderot and D'Alembert take the bit between their teeth and publish the Encyclopédie to the outrage of Réaumur, who claims that his ideas have been plagiarized. Well, perhaps. Uh, Diderot knew the glory that the Academy had so nearly merited, says Jam. But even now, what was to be done? Royal Muir dies in 1757. And in fact, this extraordinary assembly of material, which by now comprised something like 2,000 copper plates, unpublished, now began to be published. In 1761, Duhamel du Monceau begins to bring out the trades of the Academy of Sciences. Now, these are, are a bibliographer's nightmare. They have no title pages, in effect. They were very uncertain how this collection should be produced. It wasn't going to be alphabetical. So it was best to bring it out in a somewhat provisional form. I don't think it ever was provided with a formal set of title pages. Um, and for something over 20 years under Duhamel du Monceau, trades which had been described in the 1700s or the 1690s were updated. Now, some of these will be familiar to some of you, I'm sure. Lalande on paper. But Lalande's text is the 1760s. The plates, if you look at them, are of the 1690s. And so it goes. Um, something like 73 volumes were brought out by being given to experts to update. Fatally, of course, printing had moved on. Printing was given to a printer called Philippe Denis Pierre, who had ideas about modern technology and printing. He was deeply involved in stereotyping. He had projects for a new kind of printing press, which he launched and described. He was given the project in 1773. By 1783, the Academy were getting impatient. By 1789, I believe, he was beginning to get things together. And then, I'm afraid, events overtook the project. Um, that really is, I think, about as far with the practical story as I really should go. 
except to say that in the 1930s, a chateau near Petivier, near Orléans, was found to house a lot of the, the working papers of this exercise. And some of these were sold to the French book trade. After the Second World War, a great many more came to light. And these have been scattered to a number of institutions, to the distress of um, particularly the Frenchmen who are interested. Um, the Houghton Library has a very large batch of them. The American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia has more. The Newbury Library in the 1950s had a batch dealing with printing. And uh, these are really of very great interest indeed. The trouble is that they add to the complexity of what we now have. Um, I really have come here mainly to show you pictures, and I'll, I'll do that without more delay. But I'd like to just leave you with a sense of what we actually have bulk-wise. Jojon's manuscript, when he did write up his little papers, runs to 424 folio pages. Now that is over 300,000 words. And the bit telling you how to make letters amounts to some 85,000 of those words. But punch-cutting and typefounding is 81,000 words. Now, Moxon's account of typefounding, which many of you will know is very, very detailed indeed, is only 76,000. Fournier is 48,000. So here are 81,000 unpublished words on typefounding. Printing and bookbinding are only 30,000 each. Nevertheless, there they are. Um, and there are plates to go with them. Nine plates on letterpress printing, three on intaglio, copper plate printing, eight on typefounding. I think about four of them have been published, no more. So what you're going to see this evening, I think, will be probably not very well known to, to any of us. The question must be, really, what we're going to do with all this. And it is a big puzzle. Uh, if Giles Barber, who is incomparably the best informed um, writer in this field, says of Fertel's manual of 1723 that it has the first set of correction marks known in the field of the history of French printing, I'm sure it's said in good faith. But there in Debillet's notes in the Newbury Library of Chicago is a little section on proofreading written in the 1690s. These are simply uh, materials that have not really been seriously looked at. And so I propose to show you something of the, at least the, the visual glories that I hope it will be possible, and I hope in the not too distant future, actually to produce. So can we have the lights? Is our machine working? Press two buttons. Ah.
I am forgetting this. The marbles are the outer ones or the inner ones? I'm starting with uh, the English classic, Moxon, to give you some sort of standard to judge by. This is admittedly Moxon in 1683, showing what he calls the old-fashioned press. That, by way of reminding you too, is Moxon's quality of letterpress printing. And I think one has to admit that the the quality of his copper plates matches the sophistication of his, his printing. The reason I'm able to show you these particular plates at all is that although I said they were not published in the 18th century, that may be something one ought to qualify. If you look up Simoneau's name in Brunet's manual for bibliographers, he refers to the fact that collections of these plates were circulated in the 18th century, not published. And just such a set is in the St. Bride Printing Library, which I must admit I had not taken very much notice of. I had assumed that this might well be one of a number of such sets. I failed to locate a comparable set in any library in Great Britain in the United States. But such there must be. As you can see, this title page has been made by hand, taking a copper plate border and stenciling the title. And I think you can see straight away that the, the quality of technical illustration is one instantly that one thinks of as belonging to the 1750s of the Encyclopédie, rather than the frankly, rather crude exercises produced 10 years earlier in England. Here is the, the exploded printing press. And here is a printing press, one which we can, in fact, identify as having been made for the Imprimerie Royale and used for the medals of the, the king for the great folio. It's not about the focusing here. Some sort of detail. Uh, this is a press known as the Press a Quatre Colonnes because of the, the hose, the mechanism that stops the platen from twisting. And in the sketches of Desbillet in his personal papers, we get something of the research that went into the preparation of these plates in the Academy of Sciences um, archives are measured sketches for the most minute details of some parts of these plates here at the press, as we saw. I mentioned that the press has this peculiar feature of this pose. Um, there was a version of it done for Dutch presses, but this is slightly different from that. And we can look at it in more detail, once again, in the Viet sketches. See almost engineering drawings. The whole field of composition is there. 
again, these are irresistibly remind one of plates that are really very much later indeed. The great extraordinary set of six different typefaces needed for the famous royal Greek printing types. These appear in Fertel's manual, 1723. But here we have the thing 1694, with one of the great composing uh, frames, very like the ones that were made for the University of Oxford in the 1660s. And a whole variety of little delightfully drawn, highly detailed uh, composing states, the, the hobby holder. Imposition, a very, very full set of impositions schemes. Again, technical details of the arrangement of furniture, which again are anticipate or perhaps encourage the production of the well-known plates in the Antiquaire de Vie. And it's rather touching if one looks at uh, the actual headline, which is difficult to make legible to you. But if one were to read the, the folio headline, there it has destruction desire. Here is a sort of pious gesture in the 1690s towards the printed text that hadn't in fact come out and wasn't indeed to come out for not far short of another century. Typefounding is the, the most exciting set of these documents to me because whereas we do have a sort of iconography of printing, here is the whole field of typefounding in the most minute detail, even down to the actual making of the tools that could be used for type, the making of the, the blanks, the punches, the facing of the punch, which some of you will have seen Sam Nelson actually doing. And then the business of tempering punches with a box of punch blanks, and a number of the tools that are very familiar in the work of, uh, of Fournier. The striking of punches. This is one of the ways in which the manuscript and the plates rather nicely interact. Um, I'll show you a detail of what's going on in that upper part. But you have a whole variety of activities, the filing of matrices, uh, taking of um, trial castings. And here on the left is the actual striking of the matrix in a device which you see exploded down here. And this is this especially made jig, which was made to the specification of Grand Jean himself for holding the punch while you strike it into the matrix blank. Now Fournier picked this out for his particular derision, not only the 3,204 squares, but the plate, which argues that he certainly knew the plate, if not the written text. This extraordinary instrument made of 25 different parts, he said, to do a job that can really be done simply with the three fingers of the left hand, meaning you hold your punch with your left hand, and then you bring down your hammer on it. Some of you may well feel that with a hammer that size, you would prefer to have your fingers a little further away from the punch. And to be fair to uh, the Grand Jean, Almost identical instruments were certainly made by the Swiss type founder Haas, which you can see in Basel, 
and indeed I have one at St. Bride's, uh, a late 19th century jig for holding the punch in order to ensure that it goes in at the right angle. So here we have, beautifully drawn, one of the technical sophistications of Taifandi, which is not shown by Fournier, because he scorned it, and not shown by Moxon, but it probably never occurred to him that such a thing could be made. If we had engineering drawings, we could almost have it made. I'm sure Stan Nelson would make a beautiful job of it. And in fact, that is exactly what we have got in the Bibliothèque de l'Arsenal is another little batch of related material which shows a measured drawing of exactly this instrument. Well, that's one little detail which um, gives you an idea of the, uh, the interest of these plates. The actual casting of type really hadn't been shown effectively until the 1690s. Here is your starman in the 1560s, almost certainly totally misunderstanding the nature of the type founder's mode. I don't believe for a moment that what we're seeing is what he was trying to show. Uh, I think it's, it can be argued, and this isn't really the place to do it, that this is simply a misunderstanding of the rather pyramid-shaped top to the the early 16th century mould of the kind that one can see in the collections at the Enschede in Harlem or the Planta Moretus Museum. But really, Moxon's own plate is not really very much more help. But when you have seen these two plates, you've seen the entire iconography of type founding until you are into the 1750s with the Encyclopédie or the 1760s with Fournier. Except that we now have to add to that iconography the set of plates made for the see in the top third of the plate with underneath the detail is one that was clearly taken in its entirety from these pioneering plates produced for the Academy of Sciences and this is the Encyclopédie. Here is the detail of type casting from the, uh, the Academy. Some adjustment was done. I have to admit that this piece of faking in the original drawing for this, which is also in the Bibliothèque of Nelson, now the actual preparation of metal, which you see going on here, uh, which would be quite absurdly hot, uh, wasn't actually going on in the same room. That seemed to be moved in to show the detail. Uh, and really, perhaps most exciting of all, the moment. Here is Moxon's mold. Harry Carter says that no one who isn't familiar with the real thing should attempt to understand it from Moxon's drawing. It's a difficult thing to understand at the best of times. But the, the Academy of Sciences plate, I think you'll agree, is impressive. 1694. And to the best of my knowledge, completely unpublished. Uh, the original copper plate, apparently, is in the Newbury collection. And that, I think, would be worth perhaps a belated impression. Well, just to finish type founding, uh, the dressing of the characters, including the, the two varieties of bench in which you wedge the characters so that you can plane out the kerns and the, the feet of the type, the type that you bash wooden wedges into, and the more sophisticated one invented by the type founder Janon, because his wife was ill and 
the government of the Hammering. That entire story, which we now know partly through Fournier, but partly through the manuscript account of the Lebes, is also in this uh, Academy's manuscript. So here is the detail I can dress here. And the last plate in this series, anyone who has the impression which Fournier would love to leave us with, that he was the first to conceive of an interrelated series of type bodies, the so-called point system, has got this plate of the Academy of Sciences to reckon with, certainly produced in the 1690s, with a very, very elaborate, admittedly rather over-elaborate scheme for relating type bodies to each other and to the that is the, the twelfth of the, the inch. Um, but a, a wholly self-enclosed scheme, to be fair to Fournier, Fournier's pioneering point system was intended for the trade. It's quite clear that this particular series of bodies was intended entirely for the use of the Royal Printing House, and therefore um, a reform not designed to have anything more than um, perhaps the, the virtue of example outside. Nevertheless, it's got a complexity worthy indeed of the, the academy that has Descartes and Pascal and Leibniz as its, uh, as its members. I mentioned one or two other trades. Bookbinding was among them, and Jojon wrote it. But that was out of date. Jojon's account was revised and you may know it under the, the name of Dudin. Dudin's account came out in the 1760s, um, but again accompanied by some of the plates produced by Simonot in the 1690s. Again, Lalande, 1764, but here is the plate which is included in Lalande of the, the stampers, beaters, uh, crushing the fibers, and that is dated 1698. You'll find this in Lalande's Art of Making Paper. There are others that, as far as I know, have never been published. Here is marbling. I'm not aware that this has been seen before. With the little pots. Just here, the top left hand corner. They dry. And the, the comb, the tank and some of the other apparatus. Here is etching. But really quite a useful roundup of the instruments and the pouring on of the acid and so on. And just to remind you of uh, some of the other trades that we dealt with, here is gold wire drawing. Um, rather a later plate, 1512. Again, all beautifully engraved and then put away, um, some of them never to be actually published. I oughtn't to leave you without some glimpse of the famous 3,204 squares, but they are, take my word for it. It is, of course, simply an 8 by 8 grid with a 6 by 6 division of the smaller parts. And with it, in the, um, the work of André Jeanne that I mentioned, 
uh, was a series of impressions from the surviving plates. These do survive almost in their entirety. And I should add, by the way, that his reprint of these plates, which was done in 1961 from the originals, was a couple of years ago reprinted in a manageable small format. So that text is available in plates too. And for anyone involved in type design, you have a fascinating prefiguration of the minute study of the, the placing of the accents and also the prefiguration of the notion of italic as a kind of sloped Roman letter, taking the upright grid sloping it sideways, which was to produce um, a whole category of uh, French printing type. There is the great work of the medals with its um, great engraved borders uh, of the type of age and a glimpse of the type itself. This isn't really the place at all to analyze what this meant for the history of type design, but it was, of course, the prefiguration of the work done for Francois Antoine Didot in the 1780s with his fine, fine serifs, and by his son Firmin in the 1790s. So it points the way to the type design of a century later. To finish with, just some idea of the, the intractability of some of the material we're dealing with. When it comes to the, the scribbles of Debillet, this document is one of the most fascinating. Here is his sketch, uh, which we have to date to the early 1690s, of the, <coughs> this encyclopedic view of the arts. The liberal arts on the left and the mechanical ones on the right. It's rather interesting whereas mines and forges and so on on the right are among the mechanical arts. Here among the liberal ones is finally printing. Beaucoup de choses, he says. Many things to describe. So here is a project that really we can say was essentially the brief that Nino was to realize before the Academy got round to it and one little glimpse of his obsessive questionnaires, questions, dealing with the berceau, the bed of the breast, what it's called, how big is it, and so on. I must ask you to bear with uh, the de degradation of a slide made from a photocopy, made from a printout from a microfilm, and so on. And so on. <laughs> but uh, even, so, even in the original, it is not that easy to, uh, to make something of. But fascinating to see a really, a truly distinguished mind at work. Uh, and I must say that it is Debiet's manuscripts in the, uh, the Newbury collection which will be the most intractable to deal with and yet perhaps the most worthwhile. So what is it we're talking about? Essentially, I think, uh, in terms of the, the most approachable material, I suppose we are talking about Jojon's manuscript, the big folio that I've mentioned to you. Here is the title page, which, as you see, is a very fine piece of calligraphy uh, in the library of the Institut de France, that is the sort of parent body of the academies. Volume 1, it says, hopefully, 1704, the one that describes printing. But one, the one volume 
that was never to find its way to this day into print. And yet, as you see, it really has a, a very, very fine calligraphic quality indeed. And uh, I won't go into the, uh, the possibilities of actually producing this material, but one of the quite seriously mooted ones at the moment may simply be to do a facsimile of this particular volume. And as you see, it has a, almost a typographic quality, which would make that a, a very useful exercise, if only a start towards the project. And uh, I thought I would end simply with something that I can hardly justify as anything except a kind of scene for some of the material that I've been describing. If you visit the Louvre and walk along one of its wings, you will walk along a long, long corridor high up in the building. You are up here. This is the so-called Grand Gallery that was built to link the Louvre, the old royal palace, to the Tuileries Palace, the one that was burnt down in 1870. Up here was indeed going to be part of the, the Royal Palace. Down below were to be lodged painters, engravers. In the end, the project of making this part of the Louvre as a Royal Palace rather collapsed with Louis XIV totally losing interest in the Louvre at all and moving to Versailles, which opened up the whole building, this curiously narrow gallery, for various mechanical arts, including the, uh, the miniature place here, the striking levels. And in this area down here, the Imprimerie Royale was set up. Here was moved the type foundry that went with it in the 1720s. And this is from a series of sketches and plans drawn up in the 1720s which, as far as I know, again, remain unpublished uh, and would be worth adding to the exercise. Well, I've given you a rather sketchy account of what I hope you'll agree has some really quite exciting visual elements, and I hope it may be possible to add to that some account of a, a whole vocabulary of printing and related trades and a whole lot of technical details which will fill in a gap between the Anglo-Dutch tradition of Moxon and the later French vandals that we already have.